Welcome to Bastic Public Procurement Podcast. Uh, we will be talking today with Willem about COVID-19 and public procurement in emergency times. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hi, Willem. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, good. We sort of promised our listeners in the trailer to this uh, podcast that it will be fun and lighthearted discussions on procurement. And we started with actually quite quite serious topic. Yeah, so we're, discuss- we're obviously because we're still working from home and the, the, the pandemic of, of Corona, the Corona pandemic is still all around us. We're still... Um, yeah, this was the first topic that we had to touch upon. It was uh, screaming in our faces to, to at least share a few thoughts and words about this. So um, let's just say the, 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 the setup is still the same of the podcast. We're still looking at food. We're looking at procurement. We're looking at uh, trying to discuss that in a lighthearted way. But uh, of course, we're also mindful of uh, the terrible stuff that's going on all around the world. So um, yeah, let's see if we can find the right balance. Absolutely. And of course, this is to be said that we don't mean any type of disrespect. Uh, we, of course, acknowledge this, the seriousness of a topic, but um, we, will, we will try to comment a little bit on what has been happening. And, and we definitely wanted to tackle this as, as our first topic also because public procurement is actually at the forefront um, to the response of the challenge of COVID-19, right? So this is also a quite rare opportunity in which our area of law is really sort of at the forefront and is of such an importance. Um, but um, I think that I would want to just start before we, uh, before we move anywhere further to telling to our listeners in, in a couple of words what, what, what's happening today. So we will try to do three elements as our entree, following our idea of menu and dining. Uh, is it going to be Italian or Dutch? Oh, Italian or Dutch? Oh, this is a bit. This is this is a bit global conversation okay. to have. So it's global bit, cuisine. Great. Yeah, it's a bit difficult to narrow it down. But so at the entree, we will sort of um, try to look at. at, at, at sort of set, setting the situation, right? Where we, where we are, what we heard, heard from the European Commission, um, what's been happening in, and, and, and try to put in a different type of distinction, the situation that we need to address. Um, the main course that we will focus predominantly today will be to looking at the uh, perspectives of uh, how different member states dealing with this, what has been done in some of them. We, of course, won't cover all of them, but we will cover, cover some of the jurisdictions that, that we are acquainted with. And what to do now as a contracting authority, right? What, what are some of the available solutions and what can be done? And if time allows us, and we hope to be, to be restrictive to ourselves. And, and, Which is and, going to be difficult. Yeah. yeah, like always, that's true. But we were trying to finish on this sort of lighthearted topic about academic life in COVID-19, teaching in, in, in the times of COVID-19, etc. So that's a little bit of a lineup um, for today. Yeah, so I think to add to that, I think 
this is also an interesting time to take this approach, or at least me saying that our approach is interesting might be a bit of a terrible thing to say, but I wouldn't say the dust has settled, right? The pandemic is still going on in full flesh, but um, we can kind of look back on some first experiences, what's been happening. Uh, so perhaps some of the little dust particles are starting to land where they're supposed to, to, to land. So um, yeah, I'm excited to discuss this with you. Yeah. Let's let let's go with it. So to start with with our entry point, um, I would like to start with just highlighting the different distinctions that we can look at in context of procurement. So for sure, there is one distinction is between procurement of the personal protection equipment and ventilators and service needed to fight the COVID nineteen. So this sort of the most urgent uh, aspects versus the other type being the regular procurements that are just affected by the circumstances of the pandemic, right? So we have delays, we are not able to deliver certain things because what's happening within the market. That's one distinction. And the second distinction is this um, sort of global international procurement cooperation, again, with the idea and aim to fight COVID-19, the sort of joint initiatives uh, across the globe, Versus the very national viewpoint, uh, again, when it comes to more regular procurement, right? So I think that this is a, a bit important to keep in mind uh, when we're talking about this thing. And then the second point, of course, is that we right now um, are a little bit smarter. Some, so Hopefully, some time has passed from the very first moment when all this started to happen. There's a little bit more information. Uh, Willem, you started actually um, on the Dutch podcast um, with, with, you had an episode on, on, on COVID. What, what did you cover there? Yeah, so in this episode, I think that was really when things started to get real. Um, I discussed uh, some of the options or the discretions that um, contracting authorities have within the law within the directors, within national procurement legislation to, to, to deal with this crisis. I discussed it with Matanya Pinto, a lawyer from uh, Develop uh, um, Lawyers in Amsterdam. And basically, um, what we try to do is to help out. And I think hopefully part of this podcast could also be some, something like that, is to, to provide a bit of a reflection that can help policymakers, contracting authorities in the months to come, right? Um, What's interesting, that all happened prior to the publication of the European Commission's um, guidance document, which was published on the 1st of April. Um, and, uh, or at least what I think is interesting is that the, the, the Commission is really making a, a point there and trying to, to, to show the member states, because it is a guidance document, right? Um, and, and to be honest, perhaps they're merely clarifying what room there is within the directors uh, on two aspects, and the, the Commission then points out time limits that could be changed and the possibility for in, for urgency procurement under the negotiated procedure of Article 30, uh, 32. Um, now, we'll get back to some of those limitations uh, or what's not mentioned in that uh, document. Um, but what I think is, is interesting is that, that the Commission clearly uh, identifies what's going on right now, uh, and, and I'll quote, the number of COVID-19 patients requiring medical treatment is rising daily and in most member states is, is, is expected to increase further until the peak will be reached. Right, so what you were saying about this first distinction that's important about urgent procurement and, and regular procurement, the commission is taking quite a clear stance is that 
you know, regarding medical treatment uh, and patients and to tackle this, this crisis, we're in a state of emergency. Yeah, so I think that um, what is, I think this is fairly clear, to be honest, I think um, for me that when it comes to this emergency, we do fully understand that, you know, the property, the value for money and all these things that normally are extremely important in the forefront of procurement rules. In this situation, they are not the prime aim. Up here, the speed and, you know, the sort of being able to save lives, bottom line, is is the most important thing. Um and I uh, and 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 uh, I believe that you know we, we we there is not much disagreement in that regard. That the rules are not the most relevant here when it comes to this high high importance of procurement. Up here, we're just highlighting the need of record keeping and making sure that you keep the documentation for the choices that you make. Um, the aspect of it is that, um, of course, uh, there is a certain risk that also has been reported already. Um, by some of the member states, is that this is, the, the rules are all fully uh, put on the side in context of any procurements in general. So sort of abusing of this, of the, of this right to right now uh, look into um, the negotiated procedure um, without pure notice. Um, that is the one thing. And second thing is also the risk of fraud within, uh, within those proceedings, right? Um, but I want to, Willem, ask you actually about uh, one aspect um, in, uh, in, in, in all of this, and that is, um, do you think that this guidelines, this commission guidelines, first of all, really was important to have? And second of all, does it actually bring anything new to us? I feel like there's an answer in that question already, but, but yeah. perhaps I should. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Uh, it could be. Um, so, uh, look, in terms of the possibilities that the Commission highlights, I don't think there's anything new that's added there. I think just the, the standpoint of the Commission identifying this as, a, a, as an urgent crisis for which you can use them, I think that adds, adds value. Um, now, what I'm conflicted with, particularly when we talk about urgency, is I've got this academic side of me that wants consistent interpretation of the law, and I've got me as a concerned citizen in, in this. And cool. um, I think what's so when we look at the case law, Commission Italy, right? Kind of the, the Commission refers to that as well. Um, the, the Avalanche Wall case, in which it was foreseeable that this, the skiing season would open, uh, the wall had to be there. And obviously, the court then says, well, you should have done that earlier. You can't use this. This is not urgency. Um, so if I apply this to the current situation that we're in, we know there is a, a crisis, right? We know there is. So we're not in the phase anymore of like, oh, could this be a crisis? We're so overwhelmed. So putting the dot down on when this is still a full-on urgent crisis, even though the, the, we're seeing the effects and we're seeing the problems, I still struggle with that a little bit in terms of consistent interpretation. So look, if we can say that like the, 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 the situation is fully urgent because the, of the uncertainty of the amount of patients that will reach intensive cares, I fully comply. It's urgent. Um, but I don't, it, it's, it's going to be very hard to gauge when we move on, move back to regular procurement um, and when this is not uh, a pandemic. Perhaps when, when the, the World Health Organization says we've cleared it, but that's going to be very uncertain in the future. Yeah, I think that so, so, so there are two interesting points just to sort of summarize and follow on what you say, right? On the one hand side, time-wise, time frame and all of it, in which point this is not 
anymore this sort of urgent, unforeseeable situation, and it becomes the situation in which we are actually in. Uh, versus, can we maybe uh, then argue that the scale of it, the increased scale of the need and changes, that's the unforeseeable element, right? So, in other words, yes, it's a pandemic, but the consequences of that pandemic, so to speak, unfold every day, and that's something that it's still unforeseeable, right? For sure. Yes. Totally yeah. agree. Um, so just, just to sort of uh, ask you for a comment for one more thing in that, in that regards is um, what, what are you missing? What are you missing out of that guidance? What do you, what, what you think that should be, should there be anything else in that? Well, I think what, what was interesting is actually that there's, um, that the commission left out some aspects that I, I think would be relevant in this case. Um, so the, the directive provides for, um, a possibility to, um, derogate from mandatory exclusion grounds, um, in, in article 57, uh, section three. Um, and it specifically refers to overriding reasons relating to the public interest, such as public health. Yeah, um, absolutely. I agree so with you. I, that would have been an addition that could have been interesting, or at least, uh, the, the the commission document doesn't change anything, right? Uh, contracting authorities can still use that possibility, as long, and this is key, as long as the member states have provided for their that derogation in their implementation, right? The the directive refers to May. Now, what I thought was another interesting thing, at least, um, was modification of contracts. So during the the course of of, of the, the the execution of the contract. Article 72, uh, Section 1C actually also provides for a possibility uh, to, um, if all the conditions are met, uh, that um, uh, in a case of uh, circumstances that a diligent contracting authority could not foresee, read COVID or an emergency, uh-huh. um, is that you would be able to, to, to alter the contract as long as it doesn't change the nature of the contract. So there is a, a clear limitation and it can't exceed 50% of the value of the original contract. Um, uh, then you raise an interesting point about, about selection as well. Yeah, so I think, I think um, where I have a little bit of... of uh, I wouldn't want to actually, under these circumstances, use the word criticism, but I think where it could provide a little bit more help and clarification would be to somehow reflect a little bit on the selection uh, stage of procurements. And those are particularly, I think, relevant for these procurements that are not of the immediate urgency, maybe necessarily, but they are the ones that are affected by the pandemic. And that is the case that um, we... The solo fact that we can shorten the time frames, the time limits, is not necessarily going to solve all our problems or even extend the deadlines because, of course, it's all depending which way um, we want to go. Um, and we can see on the, on the example of several member states that what, um, what contracting authorities struggle these days is that a lot of institutions, if it's tax or public insurances, uh, courts uh, that, that sort of um, run the different registries, they are closed. So for the bidders to be able to get some type of certification of some type of records, um, it's quite impossible. So the question is, okay, what, 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 what space we have up there? And I think some type of clarification or assistance in, in, in regards to interpretation of the general procurement rules um, would, be, would, be, would be helpful here. Yeah, for sure. And then just to, to, to add to that as a final thing that I think could be relevant for, for contracting authorities dealing with it, this is... Um, 
uh, an article in the, in the Remedies Directive 2D Section 3. Um, also, again, optional implementation. So have a look uh, at your national legislation. Um, say that due to whatever reasons you violated public procurement law in these, in these times, uh, the courts can decide, or as the directive obviously refers to a review body, so a bit broader, um, that the, the contract can remain in effect uh, when it concerns overriding reasons related to the general interest. There's that term again. Um, and I think public health has been explicitly recognized as, as an aspect that, that falls under that. So perhaps if all goes wrong and violations occurs, the courts could still help out or those review bodies, more broadly speaking. So when I would look at the, the, the EU Commission guidance document, I think very valuable, timely and urgent, just like it did in the asylum crisis. Uh, good reference to negotiated procedures and time limits. Um, but perhaps also have a look at exclusions, modification of contracts, selection, uh, like you mentioned, and uh, the, the, the possibility for those re review bodies to, to deal with this. Um, so I, I think that would kind of sum up our, our initial thoughts on, the, on that, um, uh, that commission uh, guidance uh, document. But perhaps let's have a look at, uh, at our main course. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great idea. So as a main course, what we would want to focus on is to share a little bit experiences um, of different member states and what has been done. Um, Willem, would you like to kick it out and tell us a little bit more about what was the approach in Holland? Yeah, so... Um, uh, it, it took a, it was a, around the same time that the, the commission came out with some guidance that also Piano, the Dutch Expertise Center for, for Public Procurement, also had already been been flagging some issues, which I think was a very good move. Um, what it, what their first approach was is to, to focus on extending time limits um, because there is room within the law as long as they need to be proportionate. And as the commission highlights, also in urgency, you could change them. But perhaps we could say that there's always an opportunity to do that um, if the market asks for it or if, if that actually works in terms of uh, effective procurement. Um, so Piano played a play the role. It also tried to, to, to gauge a little bit where the room was, but there was no additional legislation that was adopted. Okay, so in that that's sense, that's quite, uh, quite interesting. I would say if I'd have to recap it, the focus has really been on uh, on good commissioning, so good public being a good procurer and keeping track of what goes on in the market, um, uh, trying to adjust time limits, trying to, and this is a more recent thing, some governmental agencies have, have attempted to, to speed up payments. So instead of quarterly payments, they're now focusing on um, uh, monthly payments, which I think in a way it's interesting that a crisis should uh, force governmental agencies to do this. Uh, perhaps small and medium-sized entities uh, would have already benefited from this uh, without a crisis, right? But nonetheless, a good move, I think. Um, uh, what we've actually seen is, so this has been a call from the central level. Now, the, the Dutch uh, organization of, of government is very much heavily decentralized. So it's always the question, like in light of local autonomy, do these authorities actually follow up what's been going on. And this is where you do see that a lot of rectifications have been placed on Tendernet, the Dutch e-procurement platform, meaning which would seem to indicate that at least certain things have been rectified in, in those in Edbustek, eh? just to refer to it uh, once more, 
um, uh, particularly probably given uh, uh, regarding deadlines and time limits. Mm. So uh, a very much a um, approach that's based on uh, um, perhaps changing ongoing and future uh, procurements instead of changing the law. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think we can see um, across several of the jurisdictions that we look at, and we look at, of course, Holland, uh, we look at Denmark, Poland, Ireland, uh, Portugal, and UK. Um, having a sort of bit of look around on those, it seems that um, many of, the, of, the, of those jurisdictions introduce some type of law. They are not necessarily specifically... Um, law that is designed specifically for the procurement situation, but they one or another way affect procurement. Uh, what is also quite interesting is that we can already see a certain uh, similarities in an approach. So you mentioned um, prepayments in, in Holland, and, and that's where actually a lot of focus also has been in, in Denmark. So the parliament has passed the law on the procurement and the contract management of municipalities and regions uh, in connection with COVID-19. And the sort of aim um, have been to increase liquidity of the companies of the market and was how to support the economy uh, and the market within this difficult time. So we have the options for institutions to prepay for, for the contracts, uh, but there is also an agreement to allow, allow municipalities and regions to advance uh, construction projects that were originally scheduled for 2021 already right now, so sort of to boost that tie, that. Uh, economy. And besides the law, I think we also can see in, in, in different of those member states on several of them, um, different procurement related agency institutions, um, they issue some type of guidelines. It's in, in Danish context that the Competition and Consumer Agency, which issued on March 12th, uh, they um, guidelines and pretty much it talks about similar things as the commission and the ones that you mentioned already. So it's how we're dealing with the deadlines, uh, that we can extend the deadlines um, on the basis of cover at the same time highlighting the importance of equal treatment as a principle and proportionality and i think this is this is something that 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 that, that will be important to have in mind that whatever the changes we introducing they are proportional in that context yeah i think that also raises but this is perhaps an, a, a discussion for a different podcast is um I, i've always looked at the proportionality principle is just smart procurement but maybe that's a, an outlandish thing to say if if it's not proportionate very often it's just Uh, maybe stupid is a harsh word, but it's just not clever to do it that way. But anyways, that's a whole, whole different point of discussion. I think when we look at Ireland, you kind of see a very similar approach to, to what uh, Denmark and the Netherlands has done. Um, is they, obviously, they referred to the possibilities within the law, accelerated timescales, etc., that would be possible. They actually explicitly also mentioned that light-touch regime, regime for, for social services Um, and also to, to, to see if we can spur those prompt payments. So I do think there's like a clear um, uh, approach visible there where we actually try to help out um, uh, market parties affected. And I think, so, so should contracting authorities do that? Because it, ultimately it's in their own interest. If entire uh, uh, supply chains collapse during the crisis, you're going to feel it when we move into a phase of regular procurement still, right? So that actually yeah. makes a lot of sense. And it also ties in with all these other measures that are being taken 
Um, so in the Netherlands, there's an extensive emergency package in which uh, many companies can apply for 90% of pay for employees to be continued over these months. If you would then stick to a three-month payment plan, that would kind of be uh, contrary to, to the other measures that you're taking. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have also Poland as an example of, of, of one of the member states, and they actually have a special, introduce a special legal framework to prevent and fight COVID-19. Um, that concerns public procurement. Um, what is interesting in in in, this, in their approach is in Article Six of that Act, um, it's pointing out that you know the su- supplies and services that are necessary to contract the the COVID. Um, there might be an option up here to the, the law specifically points out that there is an option of excluding procurement uh, rules altogether for this emergency uh, services and supplies here, right? So this is in this sense, I think a little bit more open-ended approach to the commission because the commission sort of said, well, you actually can do quite a lot under the existing regulatory system. Uh, it's very flexible, focus on, on, on the flexibility of it. Uh, while with this new um, law in Poland, they sort of specifically say, look, in, in, in context of this very urgent procurement, uh, you, you don't need to apply the rules. Um, I think what, what in Poland also is one of the elements that currently is, and, and that maybe resonate with, with some other member state, is that um, the examination of appeals by the National Board of Appeal, which is a specific uh, body that deals with procurement uh, complaints. They suspended the um, the, uh, operation right now currently due to, of course, to COVID. And that, of course, is a problematic, having in mind that the deadlines are keep running for submitting the the, uh, complaints. So that's one of the things that also we see in, in, in practice as a challenge. Yeah, and I think that's also something. So when we look at extending deadlines for submitting bids, I think also to 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 file claims um, after, say, uh, the 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 winner has been announced, I look at them as 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 two of the same, uh, or at least they they seem to be the same discussion. Is if you want to run proper procedures and you want to be respectful to market parties, you need to also extend that deadline, um, because logically speaking. Everyone's working from home. So to compile a complaint is going to be very difficult. We'll run into practical issues like you already mentioned. But um, even though lawyers always said that they were such a unique profession or law firms is that they could never work from home, they are now working from home. So at least they got that out of the way. Um, uh, I wonder what was the cause for that. But um, they're trying to 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 obviously also get things up and spe- up to speed. But look, if you can't file the claim, you can't. So let's give a bit of space there as well. And I think that is something that needs to be, you know, also, and and we will talk about digitalization a little bit uh, later today, but, you know, a whole question about, well, how the procurement, how how your procurement within your member state, how much is really truly digitalized? Right. Sure. So if you if you lack the sort of structures in that, I think that's where also brings a lot of a lot of the negative impacts right now and consequences and challenges. Right. Yep. But let's try to wrap it up. So we, um, when it comes to some of the other member states, we also have Portugal that also introduced uh, introduced a specific law like uh, the other member states that we mentioned right now on on, on procurement um, and they are specifically in context of smart contracts. Um, so up to 20,000 euros, they can be awarded without any formalities, really. So that's one of the approaches. And then the UK, which, uh, which uh, 
was one um, of the first one, I think. That yeah, one of the front runners. Right? Yeah. yeah. Provide guidance for sure. Yeah. Um, so they, they provided the general um, guidelines again in context of, of deadlines, the flexibility and so on and, and so forth. Um, anything to add to that, Will? No, I mean, I think also like when we discuss these, um, the, these countries, uh, have a look at what uh, Pedro Teles has, has published on his blog, teles.eu, and what Albert Sanchez has, uh, has been publishing on, on his blog, howtocrackanut.com. Um, there's quite a bit of discussion about the Dyson contract. So if you're really, if you're keen to look further than just this podcast, perhaps have a look at that. But I think that sums it up quite, uh, quite nicely. And, and maybe we can start having a look at some of the, I'm, I'm always hesitant to, to coin these as best practices because they're usually the first practices and not necessarily the best practices, I would say. But um, let's, um, let's see what, 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 what are things that we can kind of um, do as, uh, if you're a public purchaser or a contracting authority, what can they actually um, uh, do in terms of in terms of uh, dealing with this crisis right now in the context of public procurement law, but perhaps also outside of it? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good idea. Um, so. One of the things that we already addressed is you need to distinguish between what is your urgent procurement and what is your regular one, right? What's the one that sort of suffers as a consequence of the pandemic? Um, So that's for sure the first important element because I think that we will see that uh, there won't be the equal amount of leniency of looking on what you've been doing as a contracting authority uh, on both of those. Would you agree or would you disagree on that, Will? Yeah, I think that's going to be, I think, the biggest challenge for the months to come, uh, for sure, to, to, to see where does, where, where does like, this gliding scale of urgency turn into regular. So it, time, time will tell. Yeah, absolutely. So and then I think the next step, I think, uh, as we mentioned it already a couple of times, uh, timelines. Um, uh, continuously keep evaluating those for for current procedures, but also for future procedures. Future, tumbling over my words, um, <laughs> but also courts, right? So uh, the thing that we mentioned, courts are over uh, overwhelmed with how to deal with c- cases. Things are starting to pick up again, but like perhaps also extend those. Um, uh, look at payment schemes, like we mentioned, like what some Dutch governmental agencies are doing. What's happening in Denmark, uh, like you like you mentioned. Um, yeah, I think that just to add to that, I think that this one is also a little bit difficult because um, as, as, as preparation for, for our podcast, I listened and took part, I think, in, you know, 10 webinars over the last couple of weeks. I feel sorry uh, for you. Yeah. No, no, it was super interesting. You know, <laughs> okay. some, some people do really interesting, amazing things. And I think everyone tries their best. But um, one of the arguments is saying is, you know, it's also about how liquid the contracting authority is. And can they actually, as a consequence of, of all of this, really do those things? And I think that some of the member states will be in a little bit more privileged situation than others. So, so, so that is also something that, of course, we need to acknowledge. Of course, that's, you're totally right. That's a good, good side note. Um, and then finally, I think, even though there's probably a lot more to be said, is that, is to keep records, right? Make sure that you keep track of what at what point you made what decision for what reason and what the circumstances were in the market. Um, and then based on that, um, uh, to, to be able to file that later on and to be able to, to explain yourself should any cases arise, even though uh, I doubt many will, but let's see, let's see what happens. 
Definitely, definitely. I think there is actually a lot still to talk about, particularly about interpretation of the law um, to this sort of regular procurements that are affected uh, by what's happening right now. So I think we learned that we, we, we might consider actually doing a volume two, who knows, maybe yep. there is enough space to, to, to consider um, talking about the subjects a little bit more. But okay, we, we've been quite serious. I can, I can sense that because, of course, the topic is quite serious. Let's, let's, let's well, try. Maybe to... we just turn out to be serious people. That's also a possibility. Yeah, that's right? We thought we could do this in a fun way, but we're failing <laughs> miserably. But let's not be well, too harsh. Uh, yeah, and, and let's try to sort of finish it up today with a, with a good dessert. And, and that is to, I don't know if that's to complain or to joke or to have a little bit of a look at, well, academic life in time of COVID-19. So a little bit of how our life changed, what lessons maybe there are to learn, what has been surprising in context of being a researcher and an educator. Um in this in this bizarre times, so uh, yeah, I would let you. I would let you start. What you would like to start with? Now you can bear your soul about all these things that you are keeping <laughs> in. Uh, bear in mind that my wife's in the living room right now, so I can't actually say everything I'd like to say. But no, actually, it's been uh, it's been quite good. Um, uh, given the circumstances, I think there's people that are in far worse situations than than I am at the moment. Uh, even though I do struggle as well, I have to be quite honest. Um, it, and particularly as an academic that uh, loves to push things, get things off the ground, publish, do all these different types of things. I'm confronted with my own personality at the moment. Yeah, it's um, a little but, bit of running around in circles, right? And you just sort of, the, the, there is an energy, but it's a weird way to uh, kind of find the way to spend it. Yeah, for sure. And also to, f- to find the motivation. On certain days I do have it, on others I don't. Um, and what I think one thing that I'm taking away from this is um, is research is I've put that really on the low burner here. Like it's it's not going to uh, to material. Not a lot is going to materialize. I saw some tweets coming by on Twitter from like people saying, "Oh, this is going to be the best, most fruitful time ever." I, I doubt that's going to happen for me. Um, and actually acknowledging that has brought a semi sense of peace in my mind. But you know, I really much appreciate uh, appreciate you being very honest about it because what I think is actually a little bit unhealthy is that this push for productivity currently that we very much can see online. It's like, oh, it's this great time. You have finally time to do your research and, you know, don't have any meetings and all these different things. It's, uh, and, and I think that it, that it makes a lot of people, and I spoke with a lot of fellow academics, um, feel really bad and feel really like they, you know, sort of lazy and not, not accomplishing what they're supposed to. But it's a very bizarre time. Yeah, but yeah. sort of to, to, to move forward through that to something that, that we already talked uh, privately a couple of times about, um, and I think it's a good, good form to have a bit of a laugh. It's, you know, the sort of digitalization of education in our line of work. Um, and the first thing that comes to my mind that, that um, I think it's, it's, you know, one of these uh, this funny moments is, you know, um, in inter- on the internet that circulates right now, this meme about who brought digitalization to your organization, CEOs. CFO or COVID-19. Yeah, COVID for sure. Yeah, you know, and I think this is really funny because I think different universities have been in different stage of this, but I think that we pretty much, a majority of us did pretty much a digitalization program for a year or two within a matter of two weeks. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I have to give a big shout out to, to Utrecht University in this regard. When We have a program that's been running for a couple of years called Educated. 
educate IT. Actually, for, for internationals, there's also a lot of information there, lots of knowledge clips about how you could actually tackle this. So perhaps have a look. Um, but uh, in all honesty, it was mostly in practice. So the, the support was there and there were great movements and we were doing interesting things, but this just caused an absolute need to do it, right? So everyone had to be on board. And I was confronted with colleagues that still used um, Nokia 3310s on pre prepaid plans. Now try getting those to actually do uh, an online lecture. Oh uh, yeah, that's a challenge in itself, right? We got a certain teachers that sort of they refuse to do powerpoints and things like that, and they just sort of share what they know yeah. from you know many years of practice. Yeah, it's a totally different thing. And it's a but, tough, uh, tough balance, I suppose, because like, you also want to be kind to those those professors, because I think we need to be kind to ourselves, but also to others. But on the other hand, we're also still trying to keep up a certain level of uh, academic. Um, you know, the, the students still need to finish an academic degree, right? Oh, so, yeah. So and, it's, very, and, it's a different, difficult balance. And let's not also, you know, sort of underestimate the impact of all of this for students and, you know, the students who really want to finish and they want to finish with good grades and so on. And the things that even if you, if you digitally actually manage to get, you know, the classes online and so on, there are some interesting challenges that, that we don't really see that much or we are much more acquainted with. Uh, so we know the way around them in the regular classroom. So one of the things that we also discuss among um, us as a as, as group of, of teachers, academics, and also I actually spoke about it with some of my students, is this notion of you lecturing to the black screen. So, you know, you having students in at home and from all different reasons, uh, they don't want to use the cameras. So you ultimately fear a little bit like an anchor and just talk to empty, uh, empty screen. And then, of course, you may ask, oh, do you guys have any questions or anyone would want to comment and nothing happens? How did you came across that? Did you anyhow address that as a challenge within your work? Yeah, so for, for sure, that's it's always a challenge because you can't see that one student that's slacking off or that just has this massive question mark hanging over his head, which you do have when you have a face-to-face class and you can kind of work with that, right? Yeah. Um, and particularly with, so we're using a lot of Microsoft Teams as a limitation of how many students you can see. And then again, on top of that, you're faced with students that for whatever reason, uh, sometimes justified, sometimes perhaps not so justified, don't use their cameras. Um, I find that those tools that are available to us are quite useful. I mean, you're never going to get to a classroom situation, I find. Uh, but maybe that's just my um, my my current observation. Um, tools like um, Kahoot, Presenters Wall, all these type of voting tools work quite well. Uh, addressing people directly, having them speak in the first ten seconds about how are you going, what did you notice about this week's classes, to actually get them over that hurdle. Because let's not forget, it is quite scary to, to talk into this online space for lecturers, but also for students who are often in, in far from optimal situations in student houses, bad internet connection. So I, I also yeah, yeah. understand that fully. Absolutely. And you know, I think that I sort of struggle and I think a lot of us struggle with this presumption that, oh, if you don't see them and they have muted screen, that they probably at the same time, you know, play video games or do cook or do something else and just sort of in the background, which from whatever reason, maybe you just somehow, you know, imagine the worst case scenarios in your head. But then we had a kind of good session with some students, um, with a student organization at our faculty and they shared, you know, a really great thing saying, you know, a lot of them 
um, live, let's say, with their spouses and with their little children at the same time. So first of all, they cannot really have the voice on and they need to be on headphones because you don't want to you know, wake up the kid that sleeps next door or um, there are spouses around. And so it's a question also of privacy and all these different elements that students actually raise that I need to say that that sort of calmed me down also in a way that, that they also very much interested in it. And it's not sort of effort one-sided. Um, but I think in that sense, I need to say that I'm a little bit more maybe optimistic, more optimistic than you. I, I think that it's a hurdle. It's a, a, um, acquiring a whole different set of skills. But I think if we do that for long enough, which I hope we, we are not forced to by this situation, but I think that we will just learn how to and make really the best of it exactly through all these different tools that you mentioned and, and plethora. Yeah, for sure. I think we're actually just as optimistic. I think yeah. we're on the same level. I, I, I'd like to call it, or at least what I try to do is to be realistic and just to think, okay, I'm going to do the best I can in this scenario. I'm going to, of course, try to kick ass, but very often that doesn't yeah. actually uh, work. But if it does, that's great. And I find this is also a big shout out to the, to my students is they've been excellent, right? They've really been understanding. They've kind of understood the circumstances that we're currently under and that it's, it's a community thing. So not just be kind to yourself, but also be kind to students because they're, they're actually also trying to, to, to make it work. Um, it goes all to this empathy thing, right? In this, sure. in this situation, we all need to be a little bit more empathic and I think we're going to end up on the other side of it. And until we do, we can just sort of joke around about it a little bit and, and power through it, so to speak. For sure. And I think let's, to, to close it off, let's see, and this is, I think, what you were hinting at, let's see if afterwards we can evaluate and see if we can find a proper balance between blended learning. Because I've realized that a lot of things that I do face-to-face Perhaps they could have also done been done by Skype. Perhaps sure. that student shouldn't have traveled all the way to, to get to Utrecht, to get to my office. Maybe I could have just rung him on, uh, in, 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 a, in an online meeting. So that's a, it's a nice reflection as well. Absolutely. Not to mention something that I think we're both quite passionate about is this whole impact of all of this. And that's for a whole different podcast episode. Like impact of all of this on sustainability and environment and et cetera, et cetera. But that's for, for at least next time or in two or three episodes. But yeah, I think we will wrap it up today. Um, it sort of went a little bit over the time plan that we usually have intended for this but Most i think it was expected. yeah and it's also extremely sort of pungent topic that we tackled right today so um so so that would be the excuse for us i guess <laughs> for sure that will be the excuse so if, if anyone has it if any of our listeners or the small people the small group of people other than our, our, our respective partners yeah. um, like we said last time if the, if you would have comments or if you have ideas about this podcast you know, or if you would like to address have us address in certain things just just uh, post something, send us an email or, um, get in or, touch. Or get in touch. Yeah, for sure. So do you want to do the, do you want to do your first closing of, of the, do you know, do you know what to say or not? I think I will let you do that. I think I, I already stressed enough about opening for the first <laughs> time. So I'll let you close All right, today. Cool. Uh, this was the stack, the public procurement podcast. This was the the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? And share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.